How's it, guys? Um, so, tonight's first Bible reading is uh, from Ephesians 2, uh, 1 to 10. So, you can find that on page 1225 of your Pew Bibles. I'll give you a few seconds, or you can follow behind us. Uh, I'll give you a few seconds to find that. So, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, 1 to 25. <clears throat> right. Everyone got it? Uh, So, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live where you followed the ways of this world and were rulers of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also live amongst them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of the rest who were by, um, who were by nature objects of the wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in, our, in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that... In the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kingdom to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is for gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Uh, Thanks be to God. So, Good evening, everyone. My name is Cindy, and I'll be doing the second Bible reading. Uh, The passage is from the book of Jonah, chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Uh, You can follow along in the Pew Bibles on page 968, or you can follow along on the screen above. So, Jonah, chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. 
but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? This is God's word. Good evening, friends. Uh, My name's John. I'm one of the ministers here. I've been away for the last three weeks, and I'm sure I wasn't missed at all. You were in the capable hands of Ollie and Michelle, but I miss you. I miss you a lot, so it's good to be back. You know, you're meant to, you know, feel a bit of warmth in your heart when I said that. (laughs) Uh, Well, we're going to look at Jonah 4. Uh, let's, Let's pray again. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do speak to us and that the story of Jonah was recorded down, that we might know of your heart and what you are like. And we pray, Lord, that you'll help us to respond rightly to you and your kindness to us tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin with two questions, and I ask for your careful consideration. The first question is, do you know what God is like. Because it's entirely possible to be called a Christian, to claim to be a Christian, to have been going to church for years, for decades, but yet to not really know what God really is like. And so the first question is, do you know what God is like? And the second question is this, do you like what God is like? Because, again, it's entirely possible to know what God is like, but to not like the way he acts, what he does, what he chooses to do, to not like it one bit. And so the second question is, do you like what God is like? And we're reflecting on that tonight as we think about this story. But now I'd like you to imagine a story. Imagine you are a British Army officer in World War II in the 1930s and 40s. And you, along with tens of thousands of your kinsmen, were captured by the Japanese. You're made a prisoner of war. But as a prisoner of war, you weren't treated well at all. You weren't treated with any decency. You were, in fact, tortured and brutalized. You were forced to work to build a railroad between Burma and Thailand. And in doing so, 83,000 people died. And you and some of your fellow soldiers, you were tortured, you were severely damaged. So much so that even after the war, after the Allies won, after you returned home, you just couldn't cope and couldn't adjust back to normal civilian life. You just couldn't cope. You were too traumatized. The psychological trauma, just too severe. And it cost you your your friends. You just couldn't deal with normal human relationships. It cost you your first marriage. Imagine you're that soldier. Now imagine 50 years later, after the war, you're able to finally track down the one who tortured you. The Japanese soldier who tortured you, who who broke your arms, who, who, who waterboarded you. Imagine you found him. What would you do? What do you think God is like? What do you think God would like you to do? 
the pain it still haunts you. The, the, the scars are so deep. Wouldn't you take every opportunity to take out revenge, to kill the one who tortured you so much and kill so many of your fellow soldiers? I mean, that's what movies are made of, isn't it? To avenge the blood of your fellow soldiers, to avenge the trauma you experience. Wouldn't you take every opportunity to take his life back? Is that what God is like? Is that what God would have you do? You see, that's a story, but it's in fact a true story. It was based on the life of Eric Lomax. And there was a movie made about him several years ago called The Railway Man. He did find his torturer. And he had that opportunity to take his life. And in any typical movie, that's what you expect. But instead, meeting the torturer, Nagasi, and met him on the bridge, on the River Kwai. Do you know what he did? Instead of taking out revenge, which you would expect, I can see myself doing that. Instead of doing that with tears and hugs, he offered mercy. He offered forgiveness. Now what would you have done? What is God like? What would God like you to do? Would what you do reflect what God is like? And so, do you know what God is like? And do you like it? Now if you can just sense that story of Lomax and imagine what was happening in his heart over those many decades the turmoil, the trauma, the dilemmas when he finally faces torture, then you can start to sense why Jonah reacted the way he did. You see, the Ninevites, out of all the cities God chose, the Ninevites, out of all the cities God chose them, and they were a ruthless bunch, their brutality and their cruelty was legendary. They would... They would impale their enemies on stakes, place them outside the city just to declare to the world and to the nations around them, you do not mess with us. Their brutality was legendary. And so God, knowing that, still chose Jonah, this reluctant prophet, go to that city and proclaim a message of repentance. Not revenge, but mercy. And what happened, you saw the other week, last week, they repented and God relented. Now when you hear a story of Jonah like that, and you hear the story of Eric Lomax, you just wonder when that news came out around the world and that movie was made and where people were reading about it and reading his book and watching the movie, you wonder whether there are anyone in the world at all who heard what Eric Lomax did how he showed mercy instead of revenge and did not like it one bit. You wonder whether there's anyone who, who heard the story and, and felt that torturer did not deserve mercy. Instead, he should have been tried for war crimes and thrown into a cell until he rotted away. Well, you see, that's what Jonah wanted. And that was what Jonah was feeling. And so ungraciously, he sulked at God. You see what he did, verse 1. Have a look. Do, do keep your Bibles open. We'll work our way through all these verses. In verse 1. 
But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Or more literally, in the Hebrew it reads, the great evil displeases him. The great evil displeased him. You see, from Jonah's perspective, God's act of mercy, God's act of relenting, was seen by Jonah as an act of evil. You see, he's thinking, God, why do you pick that city? Pick another one. Melbourne, Sydney, they're not too bad. But Nineveh, out of all the cities, why that one? You can't do that, God. They do not deserve mercy. But you see, Jonah was not ignorant about what God is like. He knew what God was like. He said it, gracious and compassionate and merciful, but he did not like it one bit. And so you see in verse 2, and you wonder here whether he was just being brave here, speaking to God in such a way, or he was just very stupid. Look at verse 2. O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. See, this is the God who would rather show mercy than to judge. And so Jonah, this arch enemy, knowing what they've received from God, he ungraciously sulks. He sulks to God, I can't, just, I can't stand your tolerance, God. I can't stand your compassion. Anyone just show a little inkling of repentance and you're just too quick to forgive. You can't do that, God. Now, what do you think Jonah was doing at that point when he reacted that way? What did his actions reveal? What did it show about him? Well, he knew what God was like, but he did not like it one bit. What it revealed was his heart was depraved. There was something wrong with his own heart, not just the Ninevites, but his own heart. There was something wrong. But isn't that how people sometimes behave? How they think about God. I like what God is like only when he's good to me. It wasn't that what happened in much of the 1800s in America when many white Americans thought that they had a monopoly on God's kindness and grace and no one else, not the African Americans. In fact, it happened closer to home in Australia when the white settlers came. They thought, we have a monopoly on God, his love, his grace. It's good for us, but not good for the indigenous people. And so Jonah, he was behaving a bit like that. He said to God, you can't treat them the way you treat your own people. So much so. Look at verse 3 now. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Just kill me now. He sulks to God. This is an, an adult, a prophet, throwing a tantrum. And you must wonder what God would have been thinking at this point. Now, what a punk, this guy. A punk prophet. What right does he have to speak to me in this way? But perhaps God was dealing with him in gentleness and in patience. A gracious rebuke in verse 4. Have you any right to be angry? I mean, God could at that point not respond and just zap him straight away. 
But God said to him, have you any right? Isn't it my prerogative to be merciful? I can choose whom I should be and will be merciful to. But of course, we read on, Jonah wouldn't have it. Verse 5, Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in his shade and waited to see what would happen to that city. Perhaps Jonah was just hoping, sitting there outside the city, maybe I spoke some sense to God. Maybe the storms, the thunder, the lightning, the fire will come down upon them. And so he's sitting there ungraciously sulking. And so what did God do? What is God like? What would you do? I mean, if you are God, with all the powers of the universe, you gave Jonah life, you made everything, what would you do when this little prophet, this little punk prophet speaks to you that way? Well, you teach him a lesson. But the lesson God taught him was far more gracious than what I would imagine I would do, with great patience. You see, it wasn't just the Ninevites who needed to hear from God a message of repentance. Jonah had a problem too. His heart had a problem too. And so God, he reminds Jonah, who is God? You're not God, I'm God. It is my job to show mercy to whom I choose. It is my job to judge. It's not your choice. It's not your task. It's not your prerogative. And so God is teaching Jonah a lesson. And he does so in this little, little story about the vine. It's a story, it's a lesson about salvation and judgment. It's a story of the gospel in miniature. And so God displays him salvation. Look at verse 6. Then the Lord, God provided a vine and made it grow over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. Or more literally again, it is to deliver him from calamity. God just there with the vine delivered him from calamity. But Jonah was not wanting Nineveh to, to experience God turning away from calamity. And of course, Jonah was very happy about the vine, and of course he would be. But he's meant to sense here, and we see it, don't we, the irony. He's there enjoying the shade. But he's there wanting that city to burn. And now the lesson on judgment. Look at verses 7 to 8. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. The sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and he said, It would be better for me to die than to live. Again, this punk prophet throwing another tantrum. It's just so inconsistent. He wants the shade, but he wants them to burn. And here's the lesson, verse 9. Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do. I'm angry enough to die. And again, that expresses the darkness of his own heart. He knew what God was like but he did not like it one bit. And then in our final verses, God brings the lesson to a head. Verses 10 to 11. You have been concerned about this vine. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. That is, they're spiritually, morally 
bankrupt. They, don't, they, they can't tell between their left and right. And so God's saying to Jonah, don't they need help too? Don't you have compassion on them? And if that's not enough, God goes on to say, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? You see, the lesson that God was giving to Jonah here was a very simple lesson. And you can sense the patience of God here. It's a story of not just Nineveh needing to be saved, but it was Jonah's heart needing to be fixed. And God did it so gently with him. You see, God was saying to Jonah, what's more important, Jonah? What's more important, that plant or the cattle? Spinach or beef, what's more important? That plant or the people? And there are not just one person in the city, 120,000 of them. God says, I pick the people. I pick the people. And do you notice, at the end of this story, we don't get a response from Jonah. He doesn't say another word. And so the story ends on something like a cliffhanger. He remains silent. God gets the last word. Should I not be concerned about that great city? It's God's gracious lesson to Jonah to fix his heart. And perhaps as we reflect on this story, a true story, it's perhaps a lesson that we have to learn as well. Because how easy is it for us today, here in Surrey Hills, 2020, to be a bit like Jonah today? To want God to only treat me well, or perhaps only those I like well, but not any others. Not those who hate me. Only treat us well. Can we be like Jonah today? Or perhaps we might be like Jonah, not publicly, not so blatantly, and throw tantrums towards God, but secretly. You see, if any one of us, if any one of us thinks, and many people do think this, if any one of us thinks that one race is more deserving of God's love than any other race, that's to be like Jonah. It's one of the things I really love about our church. We, we don't show that. It's, it's a church where we've got over 27 different cultures represented. No one race is more important, more deserving. Or if anyone thinks that one political position or one social standing is more deserving of God's favour, then that's to be a bit like Jonah. Or if anyone thinks that to be more religious, more moral, is more deserving of God's favour, then that's also to be a bit like Jonah. How would you feel, just to test your own heart, how would you feel knowing the, the crazy bushfires that we've had around Australia for the last several weeks. Of course, most of the fires, they were because of dry lightning storms, but at least some of them were started off by arsonists, those who purposely lit the fires. Of course, they probably did not expect it to grow the way it did, but it was intentionally lit by some. They caused so much havoc, destroyed so many homes and livelihoods, do you think the grace of God should also extend to those culprits? 
not saying what the law should or not should do or not do, but do you think the grace of God should also extend to those culprits, those who are responsibles? Or would you rather them suffer the fury of God? Or how would you feel? We live in a world today where evil people do evil things and cause so much havoc all around the world. I mean, one of the, the things that continues to happen and haunts this world are the work of terrorists. I just cannot comprehend how anyone can bring themselves to bombing themselves, to beheading people, to killing people so, so heartlessly. But the question, do you think, would you want God's grace to even extend to terrorists? Should it go that far? Or just this far and not that far? Or would you rather them suffer the wrath and judgment of God? Who's more deserving? Is anyone more deserving of God's grace? In fact, there, there have been stories of terrorists who did find faith, did convert to Christianity, did experience grace. There's this story of a man by the name of Bashir Muhammad. He fought on the front lines of the Syrian civil war for a, a terrorist group that was an offshoot of Al-Qaeda. He saw the terrible things they did. He later fled from Syria, went to Turkey, met a pastor, and eventually became a Christian. Now when you hear a story of someone who, who was a terrorist, doing wicked, evil things in this world, do you think God's grace should have extended to even such a person? Do you praise God for that? Or do you think, like Jonah, they should have burned? You see, can we be like Jonah today? Maybe not publicly, but secretly. Because if we do, we forget that we ourselves, every one of us, are recipients of God's grace and love and mercy. And in this story, if we're anywhere, we're not Jonah at all. We're not meant to be. Where do you think we're meant to be in this story? If we're anywhere, we're those rotten Gentiles, the Ninevites, those who did not deserve it but experienced the grace and mercy of God. And if we claim to be a Christian and know the grace of God, then God's heart should be reflected in our heart. God said at the end, Should I not be concerned for this great city? And even in our city, far, there's far more than 120,000. Should we not be concerned? Because we, just like the Ninevites, wretched sinners who experience grace. And so I come back to my questions to you at the beginning. Do you know what God is like? And do you like what God is like? Because you see, the God of the Bible is the God who's Love and grace is so extensive, so outrageous, it's so scandalous that God would treat with such love and care and mercy and kindness to such undeserving people like the Ninevites, like Jonah, like the story of the terrorists, and to people like you and me. You see, God's grace is scandalous. It's scandalous, but it's not cheap. 
because it is so costly. We have to remember that. For God to forgive Jonah and to teach him the lesson God taught him, it cost Jonah nothing. For God to forgive the Ninevites, it cost them nothing. nothing. Who did it cost for God to forgive? For God to act so graciously? God bore the cost himself to be so gracious. God didn't simply forget or that they did, but he bore the cost, the pain, the hurt that they've caused. It's a bit like in the story of Eric Lomax that I shared at the beginning. When he met Nagasi and he decided to forgive him, to show mercy, he did say to him, I could not forget what happened when he was tortured. How do you forget that? You can never forget that. But then he said, I could not forget what happened, but I assure you of total forgiveness, which meant he had to bear the hurt, the pain, and he had to swallow it. That is to be gracious. You see, it's exactly what happens. When you extend grace to anyone, you bear the pain. You carry the cost. And if you've ever had to forgive when you've been so deeply hurt, you know what it means to bear that cost. I remember counselling a man when he came over. He shared with me a depressing story. He discovered that his wife was having an affair, committed adultery, broke his trust, betrayed his family, and it was just heartbreaking to hear him go through that. But this man, a Christian man, knew, experienced the grace of God, the forgiveness of God for him. And so after much soul-searching, he graciously chose to forgive his wife. What did it cost his wife for him to forgive her? It cost her nothing. What did it cost him to forgive her, to be gracious to her? cost him everything you say who is it that will have to continue to hold his tongue to guard his words to never dig up again what happened in the past and throw it back in her face do you remember that time when you were unfaithful to me to never say that again who has to bear that cost who has to live with the pain and the burden and the shame of being betrayed who has to swallow and absorb the pain. He has to, and he has to continue to do so. You see, grace is costly. But in God's grace, what did it cost God? What do you think it cost God? It's far more costly than just holding our breath. It cost God his son. It cost God his only son. You see, in the story of Jonah... He went out that city, sat down to condemn that city. A few hundred years later, God's own son, Jesus Christ, left another city, but was lifted up on a cross to save that city. And even in his dying breath, Jesus cried out to his Father in heaven, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus echoes Similar words to what God said. They do not know what their right hand from their left hand. And so God absorbed all the pain in the death of his son, Jesus Christ. 
You see, for you and me now, we're Gentiles, wretched Gentiles who experience grace. For you and me to know the love of God, to experience the favor of God, to be unburdened by the forgiveness of God, to be embraced by the grace of God, it costs God his Son. Grace is not cheap, infinitely costly. And that is why it is also so, so comforting. You see, we can never be so bad a sinner. We have to hear this, all of us. We can never be so bad a sinner that we are beyond the reach of the grace of God. And so in your own life and in your own hearts, if you're feeling the guilt and burden and shame and regret of what you've done in the past, you're not too far for God's grace to reach you, to fix you up. God's grace is more and there's always enough. You can never be so bad a sinner that you are beyond the reach of the grace of God. And at the same time, you can never be so good a person that you are beyond the need for the grace of God. We all need God's grace, no matter how good we think we are. The devout Christian man who loves his family, cares for his family well, who serves humbly, gives generously, loves sacrificially, evangelizes zealously, who works and succeeds, such a man still needs the grace of God. And there's great comfort in that grace. It costs God his son. There's great comfort. You see how it plays out even every day of our life. I wonder whether this has happened to you. It certainly has happened to me many times. You've had a bad day. And you go to bed feeling heavy, burdened by what happened that day. And often this has happened to me. I go to bed and I feel, I've disappointed you, God, today. I don't think I lived up to what it means to be a Christian. I think I've disappointed you, God, by how I behaved as a husband. I think I've disappointed you, God, by how I behaved as a father, as a friend. You go to bed feeling that weight. And I've shared this with Yvonne. When I feel it, I share that. I can't be like that. And then you're left thinking, will God still accept me? Will I sleep well? And what's the answer? Praise be to God. His grace is always enough. You can always go to bed if you believe this and know this of God. His grace is so outrageous, so scandalous. I can always go to bed resting in the comfort of his grace. There's great comfort knowing the grace of God. You see, that's for us, and that's good if you know that. But what about Jonah? Do you think that the story ends on a cliffhanger? Do you think he understood God's grace in the end? Do you think he learned the lesson God was teaching him in the end? Did he come to know the comfort of God's grace? See, it's fascinating how it ends. Jonah doesn't speak another word. So do you think he got it? Well, I think the clue is there. The fact that we can read it is a clue that he got it. He understood the grace of God because how else will we know 
that Jonah was such a punk prophet if he didn't tell us? How else will we know that Jonah was so morally and spiritually corrupt if he didn't tell us? How else will we know that Jonah was stupid enough, audacious enough to speak against God if he didn't tell us? You see, the only way that we can know is if Jonah, after that lesson, wrote down his life story for us to read. And what kind of man would let the world know how stupid he was? The only person who would do that, would daringly do that, is one who knows the grace of God and finds comfort in it and finds security in it and doesn't mind that the world knows how foolish he was. So I suspect in the end, he learned his lesson. He knew what God is like, and he liked it in the end. But my question to you now, do you know what God is like, and do you like it? Because how can we not? The grace of God so outrageous, so scandalous, but yet so good to us let's pray gracious heavenly father we praise you for your outrageous costly scandalous grace that in your kindness you will look upon us wretched gentiles and sinners and those filled with guilt and shame but yet you relent from sinning calamity because in your son jesus christ you bore that pain and that shame and that guilt and that sin. And so, Lord, we pray that you'll help us all to see how costly it was to find comfort in your grace and to live a life that praises you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.